Hello, my name is Benjamin Kitchings. This is the History Voyager, a podcast about history. I thought I would talk today about the theory behind history. That is, historical theory. And I would basically relate it to the Spanish flu because I'm noticing things that historians are doing, particularly modern historians, which I am reading, are doing when they discuss the Spanish flu. And I think essentially they're being guilty of something without realizing so much that there's anything to be guilty of. Essentially what I think is that we are looking at our society that we live in today as though it is the apex of human society and the apex of civic human thought. And essentially, these authors are basically judging the people in 1918 based around how we would expect or how a lot of us would expect people in authority to act in 2020 or, you know, 2017 or 20, basically 2010, you know, sort of in the last 20 years. The thing I've noticed is that this is very much a common feature of historical works. And it's a very common feature, indeed, of historical analysis. And I think there's a reason for that. And essentially, I think what the reason is, is historians, as a lot, tend to be the sorts of people who like civilization, we tend to have this sort of a bias that civilization is a good thing, and that more specifically, urbane civilization is a good thing. And I'm not saying it's bad, and I'm not saying that at all, but I am saying I'm noticing a thing, and I was going to talk about it. Writing comes from specialization. Writing is only useful in a society that has specialization. What this means is that in a generalist society, you have farmers that are essentially farming for uh, survival purposes. And maybe they're using farming as in a bartering economy, so, so to say. But writing for writing's sake really doesn't have a purpose outside of specialization. Now, for eons, specialization essentially could occur in cities. In some cases, loci of specialization created the city. So you might have a crossroads, or you might have a, like a river confluence, or things like that. And so a city would occur. Or you would have what was more common in the old world, especially in the Middle East, is you would have these sort of these accidental cities which are fascinating to study. Humans lived for a long time essentially putting buildings next to each other. And then the roads at first didn't exist. It's really fascinating to study to see the, um, there were cities that existed for a very long time 
where people literally kind of thought, well, we can just sort of walk through the other buildings. And then there was, for lack of a better term, there was essentially this sort of a, I guess, a consciousness raising where they thought, no, we can have a pathway. And then we can have this pathway that's purposeful. And so this became like a road. Now, it's, it's as though these generalist societies were learning how to be specialist societies. It's kind of it's kind of fascinating to really think of it that way. So, writing isn't really useful in a society where there aren't any specialists. When you have specialists, you can have trade because you have to have trade because the guy who's making the wheels full time or the guy who's making the pots full time is not also farming. So he has to be able to buy and his lunch and and supper and things like that but he's also creating receipts for trade and a lot of the early writing in cuneiform comes in the form of receipts and then you have this other class of people which is fascinating deeply fascinating to 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 realize that at some point in human civilization there began to arose a priestly class. And the priestly class, essentially, you see a transference of power because they had this new, think of it like we think of a software. They had this killer application, right? This killer application that we call writing. And they were able to use that. And they held sway for a very, very long time to one degree or another. And an amazing amount of our history to this day comes from either commercial receipts or from the priestly class or, in a lot of ways, their intellectual descendants to write things down, to bother to write things down. And this was, essentially, if you want to think of it as the top rail of history. Okay, so the, the hoi polloi was so the priestly class. And the below the, the top rail, you have sort of, if you want to call it the middle rail or bottom rail. I prefer to call it the middle rail. But you have this middle rail of history, which essentially comes from the somebody looking at the receipts of the merchants and sort of interpolating these two things, these two sources, the, the writing from the priests and the scribes and the receipts from the merchants and in some cases modern science and sort of interpolating a, a narrative of what happened. And historians do this. This is the job of historians. Now here, here's the truth. History doesn't just happen. Historians have to look at the facts and to interpolate a narrative. Now, this narrative happens, by and large, these days, in modern cities. So, historians, typically, are people that live, at least in the ancient's mind, they would be living in a city. And they would be living largely, I think, a, a it's fair to say, to at least 
the mind of somebody in 1918, a multicultural life to a, maybe a huge degree. And of course, they like this life because, you know, they like living in a city with multiculturalism and things. And so they're essentially assuming that everybody did. Even though they're not assuming it, they're implicitly in their writing assuming that everybody did, or that everybody should, I should say, that this is the apex of, of civilization. And what they're not really taking into account is a, is a better theory when you think about history not as a train. So you're, you're moving towards a location, right? You always hear about being on the right side of history, right? What if history is not a, like a, a direct path? What if it's sort of like a stock market? And you're going up and down. But it's also it's a stock market in three dimensions. Because not only does the line move up and down, but it can move left and right. It can go off in these weird sort of ways. And if you think about history as not just the history of your life, but the history of the lives of people. And people's lives are messy. So why wouldn't the lives of a lot of people be super messy? Like, say that a lot of people decide something, or that a decision is made, and therefore it affects a lot of people. Okay. And these historians, especially the, the ones publishing books, they come from a very urbane working setup. Maybe they weren't born into it, but they live in it now, and they see the value of it, and they benefit from it greatly. So that is... Their bias. Their bias is, of course, these people would have wanted to live in the city and they would have known how to live in the city. But the more I study 1918, the more I begin to realize that for a whole lot of people, even though, strictly speaking, cities in America had been around since before America had been around, but for a whole lot of people in 1918, they might honestly have been the first people in their family tree to come into a city. And I'm including everybody. I'm including even the, the powers that be in that. And that's a new thing. And that's a very, very new phenomenon in this country. That suddenly the powers that be happen within an urban or... Because remember, I don't think the suburbs, suburban, I don't think that's a real place. I think in reality, it's a city of a different type. It's a city that's not walkable, but it is drivable. But it is still a city and should be understood as such anthropologically. So in the modern American city, you have the interface of the, essentially the software of writing with the hardware of a city. And America, in, in American cities like Boston and Philadelphia, you had essentially this multicultural project that was going on that wasn't by any means the first of its kind in the world 
But it was kind of, for lack of a better term, it was a multicultural project in an area where they might not have wanted the multicultural project to be. And they certainly wouldn't have wanted... It would have been fascinating to talk to them, to ask them what they thought of their city. The city fathers of Boston and Philadelphia in 1918. It would have been fascinating to sit and and ask them, you have what anybody would say is a booming city, booming cities. In your mind, you think, well, all people can come here and be free. But then there's examples of people coming here that you don't want in your city. And to our way of thinking, we see that as racist. And they they couched it in racist language of the day. But it's essential to understand that for a lot of these people, it's like even if you lived in Philadelphia and Boston for your entire family's existence in America, you, the Boston and Philadelphia that you lived in was vastly different from the Boston and Philadelphia that your grandparents would have lived in. In a lot of ways, modern historians basically benefit from those differences. And so they think because we benefit from those differences that all people should have benefited or they should have had the foresight to think that we will benefit from this. But my question is, why? Why do we think that? Why do we think that somebody thinks that because we experience the other end of this difference and we see the benefit of it, which is essentially that we've adapted to it, why do we think that they should adapt to it? Why do we think that? We think that because we are separate, or believe we're separate, from the forces of history, from the forces of change. And I think now, with the smartphones and how things have so vastly changed within the last 20 or 30 years, that we're starting to see that, oh, we're never sort of, I guess, separated from the forces of change. And I think the other thing that's happening is because, to a large extent, we've democratized knowledge. So we're now hearing from voices that humans have never really heard from before. So this creates a fascination with things like bottom rail history, or what some people even call gutter history, which is history that escapes traditional writing because those people weren't of the mindset to look around and write things down or to even have receipts, if you will. Like you remember the the ancient merchants, their history comes to us from receipts and from everyday documents that they would have chiseled into the mud. Well, there's lots of people that we don't have their history to be able to interpolate 
because they didn't bother to write anything down. Or maybe they weren't basically of the kind of person that had access to writing or whatever. So that, you know, creates the bottom rail history or the gutter history. Because I kind of think, all right, so let's, all right, so top rail history is essentially like kings and queens and people like that, right? So then there's this middle rail, which is essentially like the people under the kings and queens, uh, you know, but still basically in power. And then there's this other group, which is bottom rail, which they call like working class history, or you might have the history of certain groups, like say African Americans or like gays or just really anybody that isn't really your traditional sort of power that be. Well, there's another group of history that I think is just as important, which is this group of history, because the other three groups, somebody had to stop, look around, and write it down. Right? Somebody. Right? Well, there's another group that's lower than that. Because they didn't even think to write anything down. You think about how much of your life is daily. And I think with the, the current pandemic, we're seeing that. Like how much of our life is basically humdrum that you wouldn't even notice, except now you notice it. All right. So that's what we're talking about. So these historians of the last 20 years are essentially, basically, without even really realizing it, they have this internal bias where they're thinking, well, why don't you like this multicultural world? What is wrong with you? It's wonderful, right? But see, the Woodrow Wilsons of the world, who was very top rail, by the way, the Woodrow Wilsons of the world not only didn't like it, but they had this sort of racism today that to even articulate it in 2020, you would have to think it was crazy. But we're able to have this discussion, we're able to have this thought, because modern historians and modern history has been democratized from the lower and middle classes and so that brings in a new perspective and that perspective naturally is a perspective that is very much pro-urbanity is pro-urbanness is pro sort of this dialogue that happens in the intelligent circles in society which probably happened then but we don't really get a sense of it, or we don't really get a sense that it was as much of a debate because it wasn't as much of a diversity, if you will, in the participants in this debate. So everybody was essentially, whether they realized it or not, was essentially from the same background, and they were certainly from the same gender, right? 
And so today, you have much more diverse voices and much more diversity in thought because of that. Now, it's interesting to think that they would have thought that our diversity of voices was itself bad because our diversity of voices was disunified. It wasn't presenting a unified message, which, of course, would have had to have served the powers that be of the day, which, if you think about it, would have been a much more closely aligned to, say, the descendants of the planter class from the Civil War. And that, essentially, is not really what our economy is about anymore. Our economy is much more this economy of ideas, an economy of commodified objects. We're much more commercially based today than we were, say, in 1918. And that, I think, is one of the problems with the current disease, that you don't have people that were closer to the land than they were maybe when the disease started. And so they could, at least temporarily, revert back. I don't think you have that today. So historians today, when they see the rights expansions and they see the ever-increasing urban centers and the new urban centers that we call suburbs, they think, ah, there's a trajectory of human evolution or history. There's a force of history. And I think that willfully ignores the fact that things can happen and nudge history in directions, not just up or down, but left or right or just anywhere. So think of humankind not as a graph. Think of human civilization not as a graph that goes up or down, but a bunch of limp spaghetti that you just sort of whip around. And for the little time that we've been aware of it, it's been more or less, we think, in a generally rising trajectory. For example, American, like, in America, you're safer today, so they say, than you were in the 70s. Well, I would argue, as somebody who's studied history a long time, that it could be that a lot of crime escapes formal, escapes like the formal spotlight of history through writing. Because how does history come to us most of the time? It comes to us through writing, either receipts or accounts. And think about how much of life isn't written down. Also, think about this. Think about the fact that, honest to God, the powers that be, be they new powers that be or old, more established powers that be, have basically a vested interest in making people think that society is on the up and up that there's always this perpetual upward movement of society that you hear historians talk about for the last thousand years. Think about how 
much vested interest there is in making people think that's actually real, whether it is or not. But here's the other messy part. You can be living in the middle of a renaissance that doesn't affect you really at all. And think about that. Think about how it's possible for America to have the greatest economy that America ever had, and yet you yourself work a minimum wage job and you're overeducated. Well, that's because, you know, the powers that be have a vested interest in only accumulating data from certain sources. I would argue that one of the reasons that we, after 1918, started gradually living in these more urban societies was because the powers that be realized that urban living could be more basically advantageous than, you know, country living. But you need to think about the, the Great Depression. You need to think about Prohibition and think about the crime that Prohibition brought about. So, you know, it got a little messy. Historians operating, say, in 2000 to 2020, have sort of this positivist view of the world. And they think, obviously, civilization is on the ascent instead of the descent. So, obviously, you know, these people living in Philadelphia and Boston in 1918 should have known better because the messy project of multicultural living would have sorted itself out and why didn't they know better why couldn't they have seen in their crystal ball well the answer is there is no crystal ball the crystal ball doesn't exist you're living in your moment and then you might think a new thing 20 years later, but you're living in your moment now. And this is another bias that I see in this country, that academic research is done by younger people who have biases. Some of those biases are the biases of youth. And I think that plays into it quite a great deal. What exactly do I mean by the biases of youth? Well, I mean this. When you're born, you're not aware, really, of the world before you. You're not really aware on a visceral level that the world used to change. I'll give you an example. I guess I was maybe five. And I was riding in the back seat of my parents' car. And they were... You know, they seemed huge to me. And I looked up at them and I thought, and I said, I don't think the world changed very much. And these two adults looked at me and started laughing because they had lived through a lot of changes even up to then. And that's what I mean. A lot of this history is being written by people that don't have the lived experience of changing their mind. 
And I don't really just mean about little things. I mean big things, huge things that you realize, oh, oh God, this happened. And now I used to think one thing that was huge. And now I think something completely different. And modern people change their mind more because they have more data. More data comes in. Think about the phone. Think about how much data comes over the phone. Think about how stories evolve. Think about how, for example, you might have thought something. And then 10 years later, other data comes in. And now you think something different. And it was a big deal. This was a huge core precept. And now you've been forced to change because of the, I guess, the facts on the ground, for a better way to say it. But these people in 1918 didn't have that. They didn't have this lived experience of data traveling the speed of light. They also didn't have the lived experience of basically having a lot of common knowledge. A lot of elites having the same knowledge base in common and deriving different decisions from it. Sometimes radically different decisions. The reason being was that at that time in 1918 higher knowledge was not democratized yet. You had to be of the upper crust for you to even get the higher knowledge. So this had dramatic effects on things like medicine, where you could have towns that did not have medically trained doctors or properly medically trained doctors. But you could also have very highly placed people that thought some very, very strange things about people. But that's to our way of thinking. It's not to their way of thinking. Because remember, higher knowledge was not democratized. And also, the rigors of science were not applied to medicine yet. And also, the scientific revolution had not really been applied to a broad range of knowledge, certainly to the broad range of knowledge that it's been applied to today. There's also another basic paradox in the, I guess, the 1918 flu. That's really kind of the central paradox. And the way I can, I guess the analogy I can give is like, so, with wars in America, every war that happened post-Vietnam was affected by the Vietnam War. And it's really easy to look at the Vietnam War and think, what were they doing? Why were they doing that? Didn't they know it was going to go bad? Didn't they know that's not how to do it? And then you have to remember, oh yeah. Vietnam hadn't happened yet while Vietnam was going on. So there wasn't like this touchstone that they had where they could reach back and say, aha, no, that's terrible. Because they were going through it. <laughs> exactly. So there were a lot of things that 
society had to go through in 1918 that they hadn't gone through yet. And they're so basic to us that even the historians can't really imagine a world without them. Essentially, multiculturalism has become the furniture of modernity, whether we realize it or not. And we it's so integrated into our way of thinking that whenever you see people where it hasn't been integrated into their way of thinking, into their life, you just sort of look at them and you just sort of look at them with curiosity. And it's really easy for even educated historians to look at these people and say, I'm superior to you because of this and that. I'm superior for moral reasons or whatever. And so I'm automatically going to discount what you think, even in the back of my mind, even as I write this, even as I'm not really realizing that I'm doing it. But it's going to come out in my tone in the, in the book. And I just want to say that I understand where they're coming from, but it detracts from the narrative. It really does. It detracts from the narrative. Because the thing I get when I peer behind their writing into the minds of these people is they were terrified. They were absolutely terrified. This was a new thing. And you don't really get that from the moderns. That's fascinating to me. That there's a bias that they probably don't even realize they have. And I just thought I'd talk about it. Anyway, thank you very much. I have a Facebook group, which I'll link below in the description. I have a Twitter, and I also have an Instagram. The music you're about to hear is that of Andrew Vickery, who's a very good friend of mine, known him for years. I'll link him below in the description as well. Toodaloo.